Okay, let's just cut the bit of motivation. So we all feel in our hearts, I want happiness. But who is that I that wants happiness? When we start to search for exactly what that I is that wants happiness, it becomes a little bit vague. And yet when we think of ourselves suffering, that thought of, I want happiness, I don't want suffering, is really strong. But who is that I that wants happiness and not suffering? Who is that I that needs protection? So it's very interesting when you make strong assertions to yourself about who you are, what you want, to add a little P.S. at the end of, well, who is that I that is that? Who is that I that wants that? that I becomes rather nebulous. And then we can also ask ourselves, why is that I so important? Why is it more important than others? And as soon as we ask that, that big sense of I comes roaring back. I am more important than others. Why? If we can't exactly pinpoint what that I is, how can we also say it's more important than others? And so with that, a sense of curiosity about exactly who that I is and why it's so important, then let's listen to the Dharma teachings 
with an openness to changing our perspective on the eye. And to do this for the benefit of all sentient beings, attaining awakening for that purpose. When you ask yourself, who is that I, do you get some funny feeling? Yeah, and when you say, why is that I so important? But then as soon as you think of yourself suffering, then I, yeah, did you see that? Yeah, the thought of the eye suffering, then that eye is so vivid. But then when we stop and say, well, who is it that's afraid of suffering? Then that eye becomes a little nebulous. So it's, it's very interesting, you know, when different things pop in, in your mind, when you... Uh, you know, they always, the usual example is, you know, when somebody accuses, ex- accuses you of something you didn't do to watch how the eye appears. But that one, that's a good one. But there's other ways too, you know, like when we're really sensitive about something. Like they said, I'm ugly. Yeah. They said, I'm ugly. Know, and we feel so offended. Who is that I? Or they don't respect me. Oh, or our, our big one. They don't listen to me. They don't understand me. Who's that me that's not understood? Yeah? You know, right when you're really in the middle of it, you know, they don't understand me. They don't understand me. And then to stop, and who's that me that isn't understood? Or, I want my autonomy. They're bossing me around. They're telling me what to do. Yeah, that, that one comes strong too, doesn't it? We're very individualistic. Don't tell me what to do because I don't want to do that. But if you don't tell me what to do, I will choose to do that. (laughs) So it has nothing to do with the activity and everything to do with being told. You know, like when we were little kids and mom and dad said, you know, do this. No. Yeah, just because mom and dad said it. But then when mom and dad don't say anything, then, oh, I want to do this. Yeah? Quite interesting, isn't it? So who is that I yeah, that wants autonomy, that doesn't want to be told what to do, 
there's a very strong feeling inside, isn't there? They're oppressing me. They're controlling me. You know, as if we were in a prison. They're controlling me. Me! I want to be autonomous. I'm the ruler of my life. Get off my back. And, you know, you can hear your mind scream those things internally, can't you? You know, when your buttons are pushed, your mind just screams that. And then when you go, who is that I? Who is that me? And then there's, you know, it's like you get this kind of strange feeling because it's so vivid until you ask what it is. And as soon as you ask yourself what it is, it's not so vivid anymore. But when you think of it suffering, then it's very vivid again. (laughs) Yeah? So this is our job to figure out if we want to be liberated. (laughs) If we don't want to be liberated, we can just keep screaming inside. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't get us anywhere. Okay, so back to where we were before. Um, oh, I, I should tell you, when I was in uh, Russia uh, and teaching the Amitabha practice, then I did a meditation at the beginning, kind of asking people, uh, you know, who's reciting, num- you know, the Amitabha mantra and really going into that. Yeah. And, and then after the meditation, somebody... Okay, tell us now the answer. <laughs> yeah? Tell us the answer to, that, to those questions you were asking us. And I said, no, that's for you to figure out. Okay, so last time we just ended a little bit with uh, the, about illusory appearances. And the question had come up, Do you have illusory appearances only after direct realization of emptiness? And the answer is no. Yeah? Um, You can have them after inferential realization of emptiness. So you can see, you know, from that whole part that we were studying, uh, you know, going through those last verses in the three principal aspects of the path, that there's a lot uh, that is learned in the process of getting an inferential realization and between the inferential realization and the direct perception. There's a lot of learning and understanding that goes on. Okay, So it's not just like very simple stages. Okay, you don't understand emptiness. Then all of a sudden, you have an inferential realization. And then everything stays the same for a while, for at least two countless gradients. And then all of a sudden, 
you have a direct realization. Yeah. No, it's not like that. I mean, it's like everything that happens in our life. Things are happening gradually. They're happening slowly, you know, and there's a lot that's going on and being learned and being abandoned and and so on. Okay? So, um, when things appear illusory or illusion-like, uh, it's because they appear truly existent. Okay? And so, uh, this happens after the... Uh, well, all the time now, everything's appearing to us truly existent. But it, we don't have the illusion-like meditation because to have that, we have to have an understanding or realization of emptiness. Yeah. So remember, there's two different kinds of realizations of emptiness. One is inferential, where you're perceiving emptiness through the medium of a, uh, a, a conceptual appearance. And then the other is the direct non-conceptual realization. Okay. Those of you who haven't heard the uh, year of teachings before this, and this all sounds like a bit of uh, confusion, it's okay. Yeah, just take in what you can and and then know that when you start over with the, uh, you know, very first video, then it'll slowly begin to make sense. I don't know how many videos we're on. 135 on Okay. Yeah, so we, we're going to finish quickly. <laughs> well, I don't know how what quickly means, but, okay. So the illusion-like appearances, um, you know, you've been in meditation, meditative equipoise, you come out, and while your mind is still in the, the influence of uh, that meditative equipoise, then when you have the appearance of true existence to you know, to your mind, then at that time you realize that things don't exist the way they appear. And so it's in that way that they are like illusions. Okay? So illusion-like doesn't mean they're non-existent. It means they don't appear the way they, they don't exist the way they appear. And so this happens, the illusory-like, uh, or the, um, no, everything that appears like illusory everything okay let's try this again okay okay so Gishi Sonam mentioned I had talked with him about this some years back and he said that the probing awareness that analyzes conventionalities okay so the conventional consciousness directly perceives the illusory like nature and indirectly perceives uh, the emptiness of the object. Okay? Because what's appearing to your senses is the truly existent object, and indirectly, because you're under the influence of your meditative equipoise on emptiness, then you realize that it, you know, you understand that it's empty, and that those two things together then makes you understand that it's like an illusion. It doesn't exist the way it appears. And then he was saying that again, Nima, who His Holiness quotes a lot, said that everything appears illusion-like 
to sense consciousnesses. So this is what it's, it appears, because hmm, I've heard it. No, I want to question that because I remember hearing it appears truly existent to sense consciousness, this is, but it's your mental consciousness that knows it is like illusion. Yeah, so I think that's what's going on here. And this kind of understanding leads to Tantra in the sense that everything appears uh, as the deity's body, which is like an illusion, okay? Because when you're meditating in Tantra, then, uh, you know, you visualize everything as made of light, meaning, and that, that thinking of things made of light is to get you to think that they're like illusions in the sense that they appear, but they have no essence. Yeah, they appear, but they're not inherently existent. So this is a, a um, an important link why the realization of emptiness is so important if you're going to meditate on Tantra. Yeah, because if you don't have that understanding of emptiness, then... You can't have uh, and see things as like illusions, and then you're just kind of visual, you know, thinking of everything as truly existent, as you know, including the deity's body and the environment and everything else. Whereas if you have that realization, then it really influences your tantric practice. So the stronger you um, is your realization or understanding of emptiness, the stronger uh, things appear like illusions. Okay? So illusory-like appearance isn't like the on-and-off light switch, you have it or you don't. It's, you know, there's degrees of seeing things as like illusion that correspond to the depth of your realization of emptiness. Okay? So there's a part in Gyulama Uttara Tantra. Let me read it. Afflictions are likened to clouds, whereas karma and its ripening are said to be like dreams, illusions, and so forth. Now when you hear that, does that kind of go, wow? Like, that's not how I usually see those things. I usually think karma and afflictions, and they're very solid, and they're very real, and I'm battling my afflictions, and they're winning, and, you know, and then you hear, no, you know. The afflictions uh, are like clouds, and the karma, and it's ripening. So our aggregates, our experiences, and so forth, are like dreams and illusions. It doesn't mean they are dreams and illusions. They're like dreams and illusions. So afflictions are likened to clouds because they arise in the mind adventitiously. So in the same way clouds come in the sky and they're not the nature of the sky, they're adventitious, meaning temporary, then afflictions arise in our mind. They're temporary, they're adventitious. They aren't the nature of the mind. Karma, which is formed and shaped by afflictions, is created by faults and does not exist in the way it is experienced. 
Wow. Created by faults. Okay. Meaning ignorant. Okay. Karma which is formed and shaped by afflictions is created by faults and does not exist in the way it is experienced. But when we experience things in our life, they seem so real, don't they? Yeah. It's like if this isn't real, what is? Okay. So the karma that is experienced is therefore likened to experiences in, in dreams. It's like when you're dreaming, when you're not aware you're dreaming, you know, your experiences are so real. Yeah, and attachment arises and anger arises and like and dislike and the mind's very reactive. And then you wake up and it's like, oh, that isn't real at all. Yeah, I sure got whacked out in that dream, but there was nothing happening. Okay, so our lives are, are like that in that sense. Afflictions and the ripening of karma formed by those afflictions, in other words, the contaminated aggregates, appear as real but do not truly exist and so are likened to dreams and emanations. No, are likened to illusions and emanations. So this is very helpful. You know, even if we don't have any realization of it, even if we just have some, you know, uh, um, you know, correct assumption, or even we just have some doubt that maybe this is true, when you're in the middle of some really strong situation, you know, in which your mind is growing, going nuts, to be able to just even for a split second to say, you know, the, karm, the, the um, afflictions are like clouds and the karma and its ripenings are like dreams and illusions. Just even saying that to yourself, you know, kind of breaks... Um, breaks the spell we're in that in which we are so uh, uh, reactive to the situation. Yeah. Yeah, because you know how it is when we're in the middle of the situation. It's like, you know. <laughs> but to have that work in an actual situation, we have to think, we have to contemplate it when we're not so reactive. Yeah. Because when our mind is really stuck in an, in an affliction, uh, we can't really take in anything that doesn't agree with our ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Psychologists say when you're in the middle of a very strong emotion, yeah, we, they call it a refractory period. You can't take anything else in. Yeah. And it's like that, isn't it? You know? And then from those moments of strong emotion, then we just concretize, you know, certain uh, emotions that occur sometimes. And we concretize them into our view and our opinion and our preference. So, you know, I don't like that. That's my conclusion. And, well, Why? Well, I forgot why, <laughs> you know, 
because all those little episodes happen in the past, and I forgot the reason why. I've just lumped them all together, and with the conclusion of, I don't like that, or I want this. Well, why do I want this? We've forgotten why. We're just, because, you know, we've put all those things together, and now it's it's an idea, and it's a view, and it's an opinion. And don't ask me why I think the way I think. Don't ask me to check if my ideas are right or wrong. You know, I have them, and that's it. Okay? So, uh, that's called uh, resistance. <laughs> it's also called my personality. <laughs> Isn't it? You know, those habitual things. Well, we just say, well, that's my personality. But we can see it's all just fabricated. You know, it's all just made up. And we've even forgotten the reasons why. Instead, we've just settled into knee-jerk responses. Yeah, Somebody says, A, we respond this way. Somebody says, B, we respond that way. You know, we, we kind of become like automatons, automatons, you know. We lose our creativity in how we can possibly respond to different situations. Yeah. The only way, when somebody criticizes me, the only way I can respond is to feel X and to do Y. Yeah. When somebody bosses me around, the only way, you know, I can do is I feel A and I do B. Yeah. And and so um yeah, we we don't we don't even notice that we've concretized everything so much. We just sit there and you can see how self-limiting it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's so self-limiting. So that's why I like the little exercise that sometimes I remember to do with myself when I get mad about something or upset about something, to just keep asking myself, well, why am I mad? And I go through all these reasons, you know, they did this and they did that, you know, and the question still remains, Okay, they did all of that. Yeah. And yes, the court of law may have ruled that it's unfair and they should be executed. (laughs) You know, because the court of law is inside me. You know, with the judge and the jury and the prosecutor, there's no defense. Um, You know, and I've convicted them, and yes, they need to be executed. But why do I need to be angry? Yeah, okay. Somebody did all that. I vow to hate them forever and never speak to them again. Okay, yeah. So you have this little conversation with yourself. Okay, sure, yeah, vow to never speak to them and hate them to get hate them forever. And why do you need to be angry? Yeah, it's very interesting to, to 
to question ourselves that way. I need to be angry because they're going to take advantage of me. Okay, they may take advantage of you, but why do you need to be angry at it? Yeah. Very interesting. Because then nobody will like me. Okay, maybe nobody will like you. Why do you need to be angry? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sitting here stuck in my preconception that nobody's ever going to like me, which of course is stupid and exaggerated, but anyway, I believe it at that moment. But why do I need to be angry? Yeah? When, yeah, did the subject, a person who, (laughs) yeah, who is never going to be liked again by anybody, is justified in being angry because and see what you're going to put as the the reason in your syllogism. Yeah, and then you know when you start doing this, you can really see how silly our mind is. Yeah. And how we believe all this rubbish that goes on inside of it. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so seeing these things as illusory or illusion-like is is quite helpful at that time. Okay, so then um, there's just to review the order of understanding, dependent arising, and emptiness. Okay. So, although dependent arising and emptiness come to the same point, um, when we initially understand one, we don't automatically understand the other. Okay? So, there's a sequence to, to the understanding and to realizing them. Yeah? And so, we begin by contemplating causal dependence that impermanent things depend on causes and conditions, okay? And thus, they don't exist independently. But from the viewpoint of the Vibhasa, from the viewpoint of all the lower schools, okay, yes, all these things are dependent on causes and conditions, but the conclusion is not, therefore, they don't exist independently, The conclusion is, therefore, they exist. And to them, exist means inherently exist. Okay? So just because you understand impermanence, just because you understand causal dependence, doesn't mean you understand emptiness. Okay? So if you make it into a syllogism, okay, the I is... Uh, empty because it is dependent on causes and conditions. Yeah, what the people in the lower schools don't realize is the pervasion. They realize that the I is de- is dependent on causes and conditions, but they don't realize that if it's dependent on causes and conditions, it's empty of inherent existence. 
Okay. So here, you know, going back to our, our reasoning class, here you can see that, you know, you can understand, okay, what is the I and, you know, your idea of emptiness and uh, causes and conditions, but it doesn't mean you can put them all together. You have to understand the, you know, that the reason is the property of the subject. You have to understand the pervasion. Okay. And the case of the lower schools, they don't understand it. So I used to sometimes think, well, how could that be, you know? How could you really understand that things depend on causes and conditions and not understand that therefore they're empty? Yeah. And then I would think, okay, you know, I understand that when you make a cake, it depends on causes and conditions. Yeah, flour and baking soda and vanilla and spices and sugar and butter. Yeah, I depend, understand it depends on all those ingredients, all those causes and the person stirring the batter and the heat of the oven. But still, the end product is a cake. And that cake appears to be to be simply a cake. It doesn't appear to me to be something that has arisen from all these things being mixed together and baked and had that whole process. I just see the cake. I don't see the causal process. So I forget that the cake exists dependent on all of those causes. Yeah. So then when I saw that, okay, in my, in my own way of thinking, then it's like, oh, well, that may be a way that the, the people in the lower systems think, yeah, how they perceive things. Okay, so understanding causal dependence and then thinking that, you know, then connecting the pervasion and thinking that therefore they don't exist independent of causes and conditions. Okay? Doesn't mean independent of everything, because you're not at that level, but at least they're not independent of causes and conditions. And then that um, inspires us to look deeper uh, and to contemplate mutual independence and uh, dependence on parts Okay, and so when we then think that things exist depending on parts, then we, you know, then we can, it's easier for us to see that not only do impermanent things not exist independent, but also permanent things also are not independently existent. Okay, because they depend on parts. Okay, and so... Understanding those two levels of dependent arising, causal dependence and mutual dependence, then that sets us up and makes it easier for us to understand de- um, mere dependent designation, okay, which is things existing merely uh, independence upon term and concept. Okay, which is a much subtler kind of dependence. Okay, but even we know that things, you know, we understand, and remember, understand doesn't necessarily mean realize. Okay, 
we may understand that things exist by being merely designated. But that doesn't mean we understand that they're empty of inherent existence. Okay? Because actually, our understanding of things existing by being merely designated, that complete understanding doesn't happen until after we have a realization of emptiness. Yeah. So we may have some understanding of that before the inferential realization, but we don't fully understand it until after emerging from the meditative equipoise, you know, that, uh, that has that inferential realization. Okay. So in our meditations on emptiness, the focal object, okay, the object that we're looking at, is something that is merely designated. For example, the mere eye. So that's the focal object. Yeah. The apprehended object is something that appears to exist from its own side. So this could also, you could say the apprehended object and the conceived object. Okay. So we might be focused on the focal object as the mere eye, but what we're conceiving or what we're apprehending is an eye that exists inherently. And, okay, so, so then when we investigate, we um, begin to see that nothing can exist from its own side because it exists dependent on causes and conditions. And these, that applies to things. And it can't ex- things can't, well, phenomena can't exist from their own side because they depend on parts. Okay? And as a result of that, um, we see that to exist, there must be some way things exist. Okay? Because causes and conditions, that dependence is refuting inherent existence. The dependence on parts is refuting inherent existence. But... um, you know, things are still there. It's not like there's nothing there. So the only way things could possibly exist is by depending on term and concept. But their dependence on term and concept is also the reason why they can't exist. So this is why they call um, dependent arising the monarch of reasonings because it can be used to prove both emptiness and conventional existence. Or not, maybe not prove, but to establish both emptiness and conventional existence. Okay, whereas like the other reasonings, you know, if you're analyzing production by self, other, both, or neither, that's just refuting inherent existence. Yeah, that reasoning alone can't establish things, conventional existence, but dependent arising can. And that's why it's, it's said to be so special. 
That doesn't mean we don't meditate on the other reasonings. They're very effective, and we need to. Okay? So only um, by first realizing emptiness inferentially can we understand fully the subtlest way in which phenomena are dependent. Okay, which is dependent as you know, mere dependent designation. So we can have some of that understanding before realizing emptiness inferentially, but we don't have the full understanding until after. Okay? So again, this is very helpful to understand that these realizations they come gradually. Otherwise we try and line everything up in an order um, that and we don't have you know any idea of this being a process and things flowing and then it becomes quite confusing okay so um similarly we must first realize emptiness to understand one of the subtlest qualities of conventional truth which is the way they appear is not how they exist In other words, their appearance is not in accord with their mode of existence. So again, we don't fully understand that until after the inferential realization. So once we realize their subtle conventional nature, that they exist dependent on being merely designated by term and concept, we will comprehend that while all phenomena are empty, they still appear and exist. Okay, so then you begin, you know, this leads you to see, oh, yeah, they're empty, and at the same time, they appear and exist, so that those two things uh, are not contradictory. Yeah, because before that, it, it just, everything seems, you know, if you see things, they appear and exist, well, they appear inherently exist and inherently existent. They must exist that way. Or, oh, things are empty. I can't find them, so there's nothing there. And so we, you know, bounce back and forth between the two extremes, trying to get the middle way view. Okay, because this realization um, that while all things are empty, they still appear and exist comes only after realizing emptiness. Tsongkhapa stresses the importance of having a robust understanding of conventional truth prior to meditation on emptiness in order to guard against falling into nihilism. Yeah, Because the tendency is, when we can't find anything and we say it's empty, then it's very easy to go to nihilism, yeah, because we ha- we don't yet have the full understanding of emptiness, which means we don't yet exist. We don't yet understand that things can be empty and still and appear and exist at the same time. Okay, and so then, because we don't understand that, then it's very easy to fall into nihilism and think think nothing exists, or think. There, you know, the law of karma doesn't exist, and you know, and then if you think like that, you get in big trouble because then you give yourself uh, permission to do 
whatever you want because nothing exists. You know, it's like somebody looks and says, well, I read in a book that all this is a dream. So everything's a dream. I'm a dream. You're a dream. So if I beat you up, you know, I'm just beating up a dream. You're non-existent. There's nobody that gets hurt. Okay? Well, excuse me. If you think like that and beat me up, I get hurt. Yeah. So that's why we say things are like a dream, but they are not a dream. Because, you know, if you beat somebody up in a dream, there's nobody there. There's no person there that gets hurt. Yeah. But in real life, if you beat somebody up, somebody's really hurt. Okay? So that's why, you know, falling into nihilism or, you know, getting mixed up in, in not understanding the philosophy correctly and saying, oh, well, it's all a dream. Then that kind of wrong view, uh, we create so much uh, negative karma through that. Okay? And so that's why to prevent that, why they say at the beginning of the practice, you don't learn about emptiness at the beginning because it's so easy to go into nihilism. You know, that's why we learn precious human life. We learn about, you know, the four truths. We especially think about karma and how causality works, you know, with karma and the effects of karma and have that robust understanding so that, you know, then that that um, uh, puts a damper on the tendency to go to nihilism. Because nihilism is really dangerous. They say of the two extremes, nihilism is the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We're already at the one of absolutism, thinking things inherently exist. But even if you think things inherently exist, you can still create virtuous karma. Okay, it's karma that will cause rebirth in samsara, but it could be virtuous. Whereas if you have a nihilistic view, then, um, you know, very difficult to create virtuous karma because you just say cause and effect doesn't exist. So I can do anything, yippee, because it doesn't, you know, it's all just like a movie, so nobody gets hurt, you know, and I don't, you know, collect, I won't experience any adverse reactions from my, uh, as a result of my, I won't have any adverse experiences as a result of my actions. So let's go to town. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's the same kind of stupidity that we have, you know, when we drink or drug. We just, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'll just do it. It's okay, you know, without thinking of the consequences. Okay. So emptiness and dependent arising are seen as fully integrated and as non-contradictory in the post-meditation time after realizing emptiness during meditative equipoise. Now, when we realize emptiness during meditative equipoise, either inferentially or especially directly, the, it's not that things used to inherent, 
exist inherently, and after we realize emptiness, they stop existing inherently. It's not that. They never have existed inherently, and we're just realizing it. Okay? So we're just realizing the reality that's been there all along. Nothing is actually changing in the mode of existence of phenomena. What's changing is our understanding of how things exist. Yeah. So there you can really see how the mind is the chief factor in creating our reality. If we're miserable or if we're happy. Okay, and so, you know, knowing that, uh, that although veiled truths or falsities, they still exist, uh, gives us a much uh, more spacious way of relating to things, yeah? When we see everything as inherently existent, including ourselves, then there's me, and there's you, and you aren't doing what I want, and so I've got to make you do what I want you to do, but you are not cooperating and doing that, and so I am angry, and so I'm going to try harder to make you do what I want you to do, even though I'm not 100% what, sure what I want you to do, but I know I don't want you to do what you're doing, but I'm not sure that I understand completely why I don't want you to do what you're doing. I just know that I don't want it <laughs> and that you've got to change. Yeah? Samsara is difficult, you know? <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah? And so that's why all these questioning is, you know, well, why don't I want this person to be doing this? Yeah, and really think about it, you know? Why is it illegal in my worldview for this person to be doing this? I've got to tell you, when I was on this tour, where was it? Oh, it was also in Russia. Uh, I, was, I talked about our spatula. Yeah, our spatula example is really famous, you know? Um, and it's such a good example, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah? Because... I mean, where you put a spatula, it's like, well, who cares? But when we care about where the spatula gets put, it's really important, you know? And we build all these layers and layers and layers of meaning onto where the spatula is put. I told you to put the spatula there. I'm sorry, I forgot. Oh, you don't listen to anything I say. So you see, it started off on the spatula. Then instantly it went up one degree. Now it's no longer about the spatula. Now the conflict is you don't listen to anything I say. Okay. And then it's you, yeah, you not only don't listen to what I say, but you do the opposite of it. Then it's gone up another notch. You not only don't listen and do the opposite, opposite, you know, but you also do all of that deliberately, and then you rejoice because I suffer. Yeah. 
and I get some pleasure out of, you know, getting your goat by seeing you get all angry because the spatula isn't where I want it it to be. And I just feel so powerful when I can do that to you, you know, because you're dominating me and now I have power because I can irritate you. (laughs) You know? And it happens all over a spatula, a stupid spatula. And, you know, and you can see, it's so interesting, you know, how conflicts develop, how they start usually about some small thing, you know, some external thing. And very quickly, they go to the relationship. And, you know, how the relationship, making accusations about the relationship. And then it goes very quickly from there to, well, I just am fed up and don't want to relate to you at all. So get out of here. Well, yes, thank you, I will. (laughs) When we stomp out, or whatever it is. Okay? So it's, um, yeah. And this is what happens in international relationships. I mean, Kim and Trump were doing that, you know? having this nice little ping-pong ball thing of, of trading insults and escalating it. And all of the rest of us are subject to their craziness. Yeah, And if you want to say, it's not fair, that's not fair. You know, that two people can have a fight Two people who have never met can have a fight that could result in all the rest of us getting killed. That is not fair. Okay? <laughs> yeah? Where the spatula goes, you know, that that's really, I can handle that. <laughs> you know? Okay? But it's the same mechanism. I mean, you just see, you just, I mean, there's samsara in living technicolor. Okay, so now we're going to go back and talk a little bit more about the three kinds of dependent rising because there are two ways to talk about the three kinds of dependent arising. I just want to make sure I understood what you said, um, that first a person realizes emptiness independence upon the reasoning of cause and effect and they have an inference of that before they can ever realize um, the more subtle levels of dependence well I don't know if they have to realize emptiness based on cause and effect to understand the subtle level of depend the subtler level of depending on parts Um. That I, I'm not sure about. The, but definitely the, the reasoning of yeah. designation. Of a, yeah. Of yeah. Designation. Um, the doubt that comes up in my mind is that we talk about, or you often hear that when a person develops a, an inferential realization, that without using introducing any new reasoning, you can turn your mind to any object and realize the emptiness yeah. of that too. So I'm wondering how you can do that if you're just realizing the emptiness of things not necessarily phenomena. Yeah. How that it's works. yeah. 
So, yeah, I completely understand that. And it makes sense to me that you would have to realize things are dependent on parts or realize mutual dependence to to realize emptiness. Because, you know, you would have to have, um, yeah, be able for the inferential, because that thing of just changing objects uh, happens at the level of inferential realization. Yeah. But I've never heard, you know anybody say that explicitly but it seems to me that that's the only way it would make sense but you know most of our our uh, the the grasping that creates problems for us is usually grasping at the inherent existence of impermanent phenomena mm-hmm. you know thinking that uh, uncompounded space is inherently existent. You know, that doesn't, you know, I don't think I create too many negative negativities because of that. <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about the different levels of understanding. Oh, and I remember talking with Jimpa about it. He was saying it's not different types of, no, it's different levels of dependent arising. It's not different types of dependent arising. Yeah, it's different levels. Okay. Um, so there's there's two ways to count these levels. Um, one is His Holiness's way, and uh, I don't know what his source is. It probably it would probably be Chandrakirti, is my guess. But Chankya, Chankya uh, Barope Dorje, he set another set out another way. Okay. That, uh, you know, long, long time ago when Jeffrey was teaching us, we went through these. Mm-hmm. Remember he had us uh, saying the Sanskrit mm-hmm. or something? Yeah. So it was back there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we'll do one and then we'll do the other. Okay. So uh, I think let's start with um, His Holiness's way and then we'll kind of bring in the other one. Okay, so uh, His Holiness's way, he talks about two things. There's causal dependence and dependent designation. And dependent designation has two branches. Dependent designation on mutual establishment and dependent designation of mere designation by term and concept in dependence on a basis of designation. Okay, so, okay, the, the last one, dependent designation, it's the, the dependent designation, yeah, of mere designation by term and concept, independence on a basis of designation, which means that the mind conceives and gives a name to a basis of designation which becomes a basis of designation because your mind conceiving and designating it makes it into a designated object. The first dependent dependent designation was dependent designation of mutual establishment. Okay. So dependent, uh, causal dependence or dependence on causes and conditions 
is a level of understanding of dependent arising that's common to all the Buddhist traditions and all the different schools and all the different vehicles, okay? And so this level of dependent arising serves as the foundation to understand the deeper levels of dependent arising, such as the two kinds of dependent designation. Okay? And within the two kinds of dependent designation, uh, dependent designation by terms and concepts is the subtlest one. Okay? So, um, in his commentary to Nagarjuna's uh, treatise on the Middle Way, Buddha Palita raises the question yeah, that while teaching the four truths during the first turning of the Dharma wheel, the Buddha uh, explained cause and effect in terms of the 12 links of um, dependent arising, you know, and the relationship between dukkha and its origin. And he, um, yeah, so because the Buddha already explained dependent arising in terms of causes causes and effects um, in the, the first turning of the Dharma wheel, why did he uh, explain dependent arising again in the second Dharma wheel? Okay. And the, re- the answer for that is, what do you think the answer for that is? To show us our specific situation of how we take rebirth? Well, that's why he, you know, why he explained dependent arising uh, in the first turning, you know, to show us, to explain how we get born in samsara and how we can get liberated in, from samsara. But why in the second and that also shows dependence on, you know, causal dependence. But why in the second turning of the Dharma wheel does he teach dependent arising again from a different perspective? Yeah. In the first turning, he would have said that cause and effect were uh, existed by way of their own character. Mm-hmm. In the second turning, they lacked inherent existence. Yeah. Yeah. So in the second turning, he explained dependent arising in a much subtler way, yeah, because the first way there was he was explaining dependent arising, but uh, he didn't challenge the way things existed, their their mode of existence in that way. Buddha Polita will be very proud of you. Okay, so um, just because causal dependence is the first level of, un, of uh, dependent arising doesn't mean we should skip over it and not meditate on it and go to the subtlest level of dependent arising, okay? Because it's very, very helpful. The more we understand that causes produce effects, you know, the more we really get a sense of, of things yeah. being dependent and I think if we meditate on that a lot, it, it changes how we relate to things, yeah? Because instead of just seeing things as, well, there they are, <laughs> yeah, kind of self-existent being there, we start to see, oh, but they're products of these things that came before them. And that also means that they're changing momentarily, even if we can't 
with our eyes and our senses see the, the subtle changes. And so just understanding that, that's got to have, I think, a very profound impact on how we relate to things. Yeah, Because if our mind is really fixated on that chocolate brownie for lunch and somebody else got it before we did, yeah, then if we have an understanding of causal dependence, then we look at the brownie and it's like, well, this thing came dependent on, you know, flour and cocoa powder and butter and sugar, and that's all it is, is a mixture of those things, none of which would I sit down and eat by themselves. Would you? You know, isn't that interesting? We wouldn't sit there and eat butter by itself or eat dry flour by itself or eat cocoa powder ugh, by itself. Isn't that interesting? Each ingredient we would not eat by itself because it would taste awful. Yeah? But when you put them together and then you do something to them, then it comes out as a chocolate brownie. Yeah? And much desire comes up. Yeah? But, but you can see that if you start to, to see it as something dependent on causes and conditions, then that can help you. And you start to, to look at the things that it was made of and how it was caused, then the desire for it would decrease. And especially if you think of the brownie changing in each moment, you know, every single moment it's sitting there on the table, it's getting staler and more stale and more stale and more dry, and more unappetizing. Each moment, you know, that brownie is disintegrating. You know, Then your mind says, well, that's why I have to get up and get it quickly before anybody else does. But, you know, but if you really sit there and think about it, it's like, okay, you know, it's changing, and I can't stop it changing. Yeah? Even if I get the brownie before somebody else gets it and I hide it in my bowl, even though I'm not supposed to, still, you know, and I keep it there for the next day so I can eat it the next day, still I can't prevent it from disintegrating in each moment. Even though I got it, nobody else knows I have it. I'm going to go in there early and eat it before anybody sees me, I still can't prevent it from getting staler. And by the time I eat it tomorrow morning, it's not going to be as good as it is now. Yeah. And you know what? It's not going to be as good as our conceptual appearance of the taste of the brownie. Okay. That's a whole other experience, you know, to sit there and say, okay, you know, because you're dreaming about the brownie and you know exactly how it's going to taste. So that's a conceptual consciousness, okay? And you're knowing the taste of the brownie via a conceptual appearance. And you have a very clear conceptual appearance of what that brownie is going to taste like. Yeah. And guaranteed 
when you if you put a piece of that brownie in your mouth, it's not going to taste like you thought it was going to taste like. And the texture won't be exactly the way you thought it was going to be. Yeah? <laughs> but we'll, we'll still eat it, and we'll be disgruntled while we eat it. You know, we don't have the common sense to put it down and say, look, if I'm going to consume that many calories, it's got to be a double A chocolate brownie. But we don't do that. We say, well, okay, yeah, it's not a double A brownie. It's a grade D brownie, but I'm going to eat it anyway. (laughs) Yeah? We're so intelligent, aren't we? Okay, so causal dependence applies to all conditioned phenomena, you know, and relating it to last night's class, conditioned phenomena, um, compounded phenomena, yeah, impermanent phenomena, functioning things, uh, specifically characterized phenomena. Okay, so you relate it. It's it's. Uh, applies to all those different things. Okay. So Nagarjuna said, if you regard all things as existing by virtue of their essence, in other words, as inherently existent, then you will regard all things as being without causes and conditions. Wow. You know? So if things had some inherent nature or essence then the law of cause and effect would be totally meaningless because something with its own nature and essence is unaffected by anything else and thus cannot change. Yeah. So talking about causes producing effects would be totally meaningless. But we know causes produce effects, so then, you know, then through that we know that uh, you know they can't be inherently existent. Okay, and here's a quote from Jason Kappa. Thus, essencelessness is established uh, just by reasoning from dependent arising. Thus, just by ascertaining causality, one destroys all apparitions grasped as truly existent. From that point on, reification and nihilism, elaboration and deprecation, all of the antitheses of the right view are cut off. Now here, he's making it sound like, in response to your question, that it's only the realization of causal dependence. That you know, only the realization of that first level can cut off reification and nihilism and destroy all apparitions grasped as truly existent. So that's interesting because he's talking about it in relationship to only conditioned things, not to permanent phenomena. So that uh, goes on the question list for His Holiness. The next uh, one is dependent designation. And in that, we have uh, mutual dependence, or it can also be called relational dependence. And so, 
Um, here, we're talking about how things become what they are in relationship to something else. So long is long because short exists, okay? And heavy heavy exists because light exists. Yeah. And so here, in causal dependence, the result depended on the cause, but the cause didn't depend on the result. But in mutual dependence, the cause depends on the result, not because the result produces the cause, it doesn't produce the cause, but because in terms of calling something a cause, you can only call it a cause if there's the possibility of it producing an effect. Okay? So in in terms of how we uh, designate things, they're designated mutually, independence upon each other, not independently. So it's not that long is out there alone, you can only establish long in relationship to short, and you can only establish a cause in relationship to effect, in the same way that you can only uh, establish an effect in relationship to cause. Okay, now this one, I think, gets really interesting. If you sit and meditate and think of the identities you hold. You know, we were talking last night about identities and identity politics and clinging to our identities. And it's very interesting to sit there and think of all these identities, these things that you think you are, yeah, and to see that they're all established in relationship to something else. Okay, so if we start off with race, which is such a hot topic, race, whatever race we are, is only established in relationship to all the other races that exist. And whatever religion we are is only established in relationship to all the other religions or at least to one other religion. You know, you don't have to have all of them, but at least something else. And so we begin to, to see how we create identities also in terms of what we think we aren't. It's not just I am this, it's I am not that. But the two things, none of them exist in and of, the, in and of themselves. You know, like we make such a big deal about race in this country. Whatever our race is only exists because there are other, there's another race. If there were only our race, we would not even think of the word race wouldn't even exist. And we wouldn't even think about whatever race we were because there, there wouldn't be any discussion. Yeah. And the same thing about gender, the same thing about educational level, about social status, about anything we think we are, is only because there's something else in that same category. Because what, what we are doesn't exist 
in and of itself. It exists in relationship to other things. You know? So it's very interesting when you start to really think, you know, you, you have this feeling, well, I am a this, and then you start thinking about dependent relations, you know, dependent or mutual designation, and then it's like, well, there's nothing really in me that makes me a this unless there's something that's not a this, that's a that. Yeah. And and yeah, and it begins to feel kind of weird, all these things that we're so sure we are. Well, you know, we're not really so sure we are. And that goes for, you know, how we think of our personality. You know, well, I'm just an angry person, or I'm just, you know, I'm a kind person, or whatever oh, adjectives we label ourselves, you know. All those designations only come about in relationship to thing, different sets of qualities that are not them. And they only come about in relationship as labeled independence on certain qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it really kind of uh, changes your feeling about who you think you are. Yeah. And then you, you begin to think, you know, our whole society, we, we've created this whole society with so many rules and so many regulations, and you can do this and you can't do that, and this is worthwhile and that is not worthwhile, and this makes your life meaningful, and that makes your life stupid, and all of that whole stuff. You begin to say, well, it's only designated like that because there's something else. It's not like, you know, it exists like that from its own side. So, you know, I I really have to laugh sometimes when I hear this whole thing about the economy, you know, and the economy's doing well and the economy's doing bad and we have to regulate the economy, we have to do these things so that, you know, the dollar you know doesn't have inflation or this doesn't happen or or you know all these things were time to manipulate the economy. But who created the economy? Where did the economy come from? It's not that it it existed there from beginningless time as some absolute entity that was not created. You know, human beings' minds created an economy. Yeah, we created this economy and then we get all stuck in it because it's going down when we want it to go up. You know, I mean, who created the stock market? Yeah. The stock market didn't come from seeds in the ground. Yeah. Stock market, people's minds invented the stock market. And yet now we are are oppressed by the stock market. Because what happens in the stock market influences to everybody, even if you don't own stock. But we're the ones who created the stupid stock market. You know? It's the new God, yes. For sure. So when you really think of it, it just gives you a different perspective on, you know, what we're 
what we're doing here and how much we suffer. You know, how much we suffer. And you think, remember all the suffering you went through in grade school and as a teenager, you know, of I don't fit in with the in-group. Yeah. Anybody here feel like they fit in with the in-group in high school? No. You know, I've never met one person who felt like they they were part of the in-group in high school. Even the people I thought were the in-group, they didn't feel like they were in the in-group. Of course, I didn't discover this until after I graduated high school. But, you know, everybody's sitting there. It's like, I'm not in the in-group. Here are all the popular kids, and I don't fit in with them. Yeah, remember that? Yeah? Oh, they all look so attractive, and I don't look like them. Yeah? And they all have what it takes, and they're popular, and they're good-looking, and they're this, and they're that, and I'm not like them. And we suffer so much. Remember that? Yeah. And who invented in-group and out-group? And who invented the characteristics that you have to have to be in the in-group? Yeah. And, you know, the nerdy kids. I was in the nerdy kids, except you didn't, you didn't have the term nerd at that time. Yeah. What did we call them? I don't know. They were the out-of-it kids. Huh? The brainy. the brainy kids. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that sounds nicer than nerds, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, you know, whatever. Okay, so I was put in that group. So that means that you, you're not in the popular group, because the popular group were the football players and the cheerleaders. Okay, yeah. The pocket protectors, yeah. the kids with the pocket, the little protectors, so that the ballpoint pants won't make their shirts. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And you know, and you make the things of you know. Well, they have that, and I'm not like that. And I don't fit in, and why not? And nobody understands me. And you know, those kids are happy, but they don't even talk to me. And so much suffering. And it's all because, you know, we made up these rules. We made up a a social structure in our minds. We created it, and then we suffer because of it. Yeah? So... We kill ourselves. Yeah. When we're not in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you think of ki- kids with Facebook now. Oh my goodness! If we suffered, what are they going through with you know Facebook and you know oh somebody has more likes than I have and nobody likes me and so likes them and I they used to like me and today they don't like me and God, you know we invent ways to make each other, to make ourselves suffer. And then we believe, we look at all that stuff as if it objectively exists, don't we? That whole social structure we invented in high school, you know, it's out there. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay. 
So with that, I think we will leave dependent. <laughs> you know, we'll we'll uh, stop for this evening, and so you can think about all your high school suffering, <laughs> and and how unnecessary. What dorks? Dorks. Dorks. You're being dorky. Dorks. Dorks. The brainy kids. With the dorks, geeks were computer kids, but they did that. What wasn't? Yeah, we were pre-geeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, leave you to contemplate. You know, the misery you experienced simply by your mind creating something out of nothing. That where everything was dependent on everything else. What's yeah. the past tense part about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do it now, too, don't yes. we? Yeah. Yeah. All these different categories. Yeah. Oh, they're young and I'm old. Yeah. Oh, but it's good to be old now. Thank goodness I'm not young anymore. Oh, but they're young and it's better to be younger. Yeah, the past tense is us is that we can look back and see it then, and it's hard to see it now. Yeah. <laughs>